0: Welcome to the Sports Pro Podcast, getting inside the sports industry and recording it on audio.
1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to another Sports Pro Podcast. My name is Owen Connolly. I'm the editor at large at Sports Pro, and we are almost there 2019, almost done, which can only mean one thing, and that is that it's time for a review of the year, looking back on some of the highlights some of the trends, some of the deals, some of the things that have really defined the end of a sports industry decade. We're going to be hearing a little bit later on from Lisa Parfit, the Managing Director of Engine Sport, uh, just having a chat about what's been another year of real growth uh, for women's sport. Um, But before that, let's hear from our other guests. And they are, once again, Sam Karp, the Sports Pro Senior Writer. Hi, Sam. Hi, Owen. How are you? How are you doing? I'm not too bad, Sam, not too bad. We're right up against the end of your, uh, your year, Sam, so great to have you.
2: One hour and 47 minutes to go.
1: Fantastic. Uh, we won't keep you that long. Uh, and also, just for a short time uh, at the top of the programme, we have Tom Bassam, the Sports Pro Digital Editor. Hi, Tom, how are you? Hello, everyone. How is everyone doing? Good, I think. Looking forward to a bit of a break. Um, but before that, let's get some thoughts on 2019 in the sports industry. Tom, we'll start with you. What has been your highlight of the sports industry year?
0: Um, I Well, I'd, it has to be the, the Cricket World Cup, I think. Um, I mean, maybe not all of the Cricket World Cup, probably just the final. But um, I don't think it gets much better than, than sort of how, how that ended. Um, and also just the sort of, the, the narratives that came off of it as well. Um, everything around uh the the broadcast and the fact that it was opened up to sort of the wider public and the conversations that started about how um how sport is consumed. Um I I found that not only just personally satisfying as a as an Englishman, but also interesting as a as a sports industry observer. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I feel like for a single moment the the, the very end of that I mean it was one of those that kind of kept tapering and tapering and tapering. Yeah. A tournament, maybe not all of it is memorable as memorable as the very end, but um Certainly reasonably high standard throughout, but it kept tapering off, getting more dramatic, on, particularly on that final day. You had um, just an extraordinary kind of confluence of events leading up to, to the Super Over, and then a, a last, last ball, uh, denouement, and a, just an enormous relief. I mean, you know, speaking from a fan's perspective, just a, an extraordinary kind of cathartic and ecstatic and every other spectacular kind of emotion you could experience in, in a few seconds of action. But, yeah, as you say, on the narrative side, there was, there was just so much in that, in that moment. Um, and, of course, Sam, it, it coincided with some pretty dramatic events elsewhere across London, and we've seen um, a bit of work from the ICC and Wimbledon just this week, um, yeah. bringing together this incredibly dramatic Wimbledon final that was going on at the same time as uh, is the cricket world cup final
2: yes i think we're almost tiptoeing around the phrase that i believe you coined uh, in the week after split screen sunday Mm. where um, many of us were either running between screen in the living room and one in the kitchen or had a laptop on uh, with the tennis on with the uh, f1 on in the background or whatever combination it was Um, it was possibly the first time where people were trying to uh, keep up with so many live events and so many major live events at once and it you know I think it, what it what it taught us about the way that people are now consuming live sport it's not just on television it it's it kind of it was a kind of prime example a case study if you will of the multitude of options that people now have to to view these events yeah
1: yeah and I think um we talked a bit about it during the tournament and it was it was this kind of agonized debate um about the the cricket world cup in in uh, specifically in the UK, um, and access to coverage, and you know, when, once you threw everything open, it, it brought a lot more people in, and it made uh, that experience not just of watching that game, but of watching everything that bit more that bit more widely shared.
2: Yeah, and I think you know, as you mentioned before, the the piece of content that the ICC and Wimbledon released this week. You know, those that that Sunday in particular was, was was a massive highlight. But the the way it all unfolded means that those those moments are going to have a, a lot longer shelf life for those organisations. Mm. Uh, obviously, the, the, as, as I say, the way it happened was possibly one in a million, maybe more than that. But at the same time, the value the value of that content that those organisations organisations now have is um,
0: is going to extend well beyond that summer it was a sort of moment outside of football that uh, enjoyed sort of mass brought mass inclusion. Yeah. Usually I feel like the, I feel like the uh, feel like England or the UK or wherever it is really uh, only really bonds around certain things, but that seemed to be a weekend where everyone was bonding around multiple things at the same time, but they're all in sport and they're all happening in front of us. So I think, I think for me, that's kind of what I enjoyed out of it. Yeah. And it's been fun. Fa-
1: it's been fantastic to relive it in the last week. And, you Know, um, I mean, this again, this is quite an, a, a UK centric conversation, but uh, the, the celebration again of all those moments because of Ben Stokes winning Sports Personality of the Year, and it's it, it was one of those days where you know, for all the talk that's going to come up now about the value of live versus the value of uh, time shifted stuff and scripted entertainment and all the the quite difficult conversation sport is going to have to have about its right sales processes and where it sits in this new media landscape. It was, it was a good reminder of what it has to offer. Um, Sam, any other highlights from this year?
2: Um, well, other than the summer of women's sport that we had, which I believe Lisa Parfitt is obviously going to pick up on a little later on. Um, I'm going to go with kind of another, another, major event that made me feel nice and warm inside which was the rugby world cup in japan i think obviously it was almost it was kind of a tournament where the underdog story sort of shone through in many ways which you can't always say for a rugby world cup which is usually very predictable Mm. um from the group stages it rarely you know usually attracts that much interest until the knockouts but i think you know i think world rugby said after the tournament that it was you know, it was, the, it was the narrowest margin of, you know, points between the lower tier and top tier nations. And we also saw some upsets in the group stages. Um, I think it was Uruguay beating Fiji. Um, you obviously, And then obviously the main story was, the, the true undog story, I guess, was Japan, who ultimately overcame so much more than just a decent Scottish side in front of them. They overcame a mass tragedy, a big tragedy of, um, of the typhoon that obviously cancelled several games during the tournament. Um and I think just the way they came through that to become the first Asian team to reach the knock reach the knockout stages was a really you know a, a very very sort of touching moment mm. um something that really won a lot of fans for japan but but also at the same time kind of highlighted the potential that the sport has there um It was obviously a slight gamble when world rugby awarded them the competition all those years ago I guess it feels like all those years ago now but it's definitely a gamble that has paid off, and um, I think even once they got knocked out of the tournament, the, the feedback that that they were getting as a host nation from all the teams that have participated, you know, they were making a real effort to thank Japan, um, and I just think it was kind of a time when we're seeing a lot of major events go to countries for, you know, maybe the wrong reasons. Mm. Um, it felt like on this occasion the Rugby World Cup had gone there for the right one, and... They've kind of been rewarded for that yeah. in the sense that here now is a nation that really represents a big opportunity for world rugby and is going to play a big big part in the sport going forward yeah i thought
1: it was a really interesting moment of rights holders good work coming together with some really and you know not dissimilar to, to how the cricket world cup ended with some fantastic stories on the field so yes rugby world cup or sorry World rugby took this quite forward-thinking decision to to put the tournament in Japan, whenever that was, 10 years ago, I think it was, that they, they made that decision in, in tandem with England taking 2015. And they were rewarded with Japan, first of all, blowing the doors off in 2015 when they beat South Africa and kind of got everybody's attention. But then just playing this fantastically, again, the word, I guess, is inclusive. It was really enjoyable to watch Japan in a way that, isn't always the case at that level. You know, they played incredibly expressively and, um, you know, with, with quite a lot of, of daring and, and technical ability. Um, and then of course, in, even in the final, you had this fantastic story of, of uh, Sia Khaleesi, um, you know, which, which made
2: everybody feel good about the sport again. I think, um, yeah, exactly. I think it was, you know, we always talk about, uh, you know, those old cliche terms that you associate with what hosting a major event can do. But, I think in this case, you know, you mentioned the word legacy, um, the impact it can have on a community, on a nation. I think those actually ring true in this situation, and it's, um, you know, we shouldn't be kind of afraid of using those words, using those words to describe it, because it was, it was a tournament that is going to leave a legacy, and it, it was a tournament that is going to have a positive impact on Japan. And, you know, when they, when they, in particular, beat Scotland, it wasn't. Kind of a, a one-off. It was a product of those of those twelve years um, developing the sport, uh, not just on the pitch, but the whole infrastructure around it. You know, you saw in the build-up all of the things that were going on in the schools. Um, so yeah, I think that's that's probably why it was it was my highlight for, for twenty nineteen. Mm-hmm.
0: Tom, yeah, I, I, I think just going back to what Sam said about um, about taking events to countries for the right reasons is actually really prescient, especially. Yeah, especially sort of with the kind of the creep of the creep of that in the other direction that we've seen this year, and the kind of criticism mm. that we brought from elsewhere. Um, I mean, I think I think we could probably tiptoe around all day, but um, Saudi Arabia really is the kind of one that we're all referring to. And mm. I mean, how many how many is that? How many events has that got this year? It's now, well, Serie A, Super Cup, uh, Spanish Super Cup. Uh, had the big fight there recently with uh with with a j um and, and clearly there were kind of lots and lots of uh, oh that's the, the 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 new women's european the United's european tour event um uh, yeah and, and people people were taking events there for financial reasons which is fine but um you then can't ignore what Rory mael called the sort of the moral reasons as well that you you yeah. might not want to go there or um, do that, and the the Rugby World Cup, as Sam said, is sort of like the antithesis of that. Whilst yes, obviously a big financial opportunity in going to a new market, and um, it wasn't just a sort of straight up cash grab. It was a genuine opportunity in a market which would like which has actual um, actual potential to be a, a big a big rugby nation, rather than just awarding something to the to the uh, to the highest bidder, which I think is. A, a, a negative trend that maybe we've seen in 2019 so yeah I, that's that was sort of my big takeaway I think from from that yeah side and of yeah and
1: I mean and Japan of course becomes you know as it matures as a rugby market it's bigger than any other market where rugby is a is a leading sport and I think you know the the combination of things that you you've uh you've embedded a culture there but there is a commercial opportunity uh, rugby of course will have a, a different set of uh, commercial conversations, as you know, groups like CVC come in, and, and venture capital becomes more of a um, um, more of an influence. But certainly, what's happened in Japan in the last few years is is really going to be a big part of, of how the sport changes in in the years ahead. Uh, Tom, you talked a bit about events happening in places where perhaps there isn't a, a reason beyond money for them to be there. Um, which leads us on to the World Athletics Championships, oh. <laughs> um, or rather, you know, I mean, that that ended up being an event that that delivered some some quite uplifting stories, um, you know, particularly from a British perspective. Again, with Katerina Johnson Thompson and Dina Asher Smith uh, both performing wonderfully, and you know, some some really high class performances. A few glimpses of where athletics can go from a presentation point of view, but really for me, the moment that is part highlight and partly kind of just draws together a few different strands of what's been happening in sport this year Um, comes from athletics. And that is Elliot Kipchoge uh, breaking the two hour barrier in the marathon with the help of Ineos and Nike and uh, this whole kind of team, almost like, you know, it was coordinated, almost like a, like a moon landing, you know, to, to try and get this guy over the line. Uh, Inside two hours, I think it's really fascinating where that takes sport, you know, that you have this completely owned and styled event. Um, You have organizations that are aware that they're operating outside of kind of officially sanctioned um, conditions, but that it still captured a lot of popular imagination. And, you know, that was front page news around the world and and had an enormous, uh, enormous global audience for, for that moment on, Saturday morning, when was it?
0: October in, in Vienna. Yeah, I, um, I mean, I think it sort of started a little bit last year when you had uh, Phil Mickelson and uh, Tiger Woods playing the match, where that was, again, another one of those events sanctioned outside of sort of any normal organising body and played purely for the spectacle of subscribers or VIPs. Um, and I think that's a, I think that's another a, a trend that could actually continue massively in the next few years, where people will find different kinds of achievements in sport to build a tempo event around, and then really do their utmost to make it as sort of give it give it as much gravitas as possible without the need to having without the need of having like those big traditional federations or bodies um, bringing their influence to it. I mean, I think. Yeah, I think that one of the more interesting sessions or sort of things I've heard this year was uh, was at the OTT Summit in Madrid where Dan Porter from Overtime was talking about their kind of their model and what they find interesting. And uh, it's going to be, I think what's going to be one of those things that you see more and more of is athletes or small groups taking tiny events and making them into things that they can monetize and, t- and turn into. Yeah, turn into major properties by themselves without sort of, without the need for someone else to tell you this is something that you need to be watching.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I just think you know the relationship between then somebody like Nike as a sponsor and as a supplier to, to a lot of leading athletes, obviously you're still going to need that structure. You're still going to have to have some kind of meritocratic sense of, of who the best is. Mm. Um, but the amount that, that companies are going to be able to do on their own is, is going to change in one way or another. And, and, and who kind of holds the balance of power, I think is going to change a little bit as well. All right, let's talk about some deals that have, uh, have, have reverberated around the industry or percolated through the industry or done whatever metaphorical thing you feel has made an impression.
0: Um, Tom, one that you would pick out? Uh, I mean, this one's right from the start of the year and um, and it's actually still yet to bear fruit as far as i'm aware um but so discovery you've obviously gone big on direct-to-consumer in golf um, went out and acquired play video group which is a cycling content type, a digital tool cycling content um company probably best known um on youtube uh to build out to build out the offering for their, for what's going to be a cycling only, well, a cycling focused, again, direct-to-consumer product. As a cycling fan, for me, that's really exciting. I think it's, for me, that's the kind of point of OTT is it's, this is something you can build something around. Mm. It is more than just somewhere where you can watch live sports. It's like the promise of it was a kind of a cycling community where it involves more than just sort of, what's happening on a race day or around races or grand tours but has, has kind of practical elements built into it or um, merchandising or however they, however they choose to go with it that was the kind of promise of it, it was this is, uh, this is something for cyclists not just for fans of fans of watching cycle racing I guess and for me that was a that was a really sort of interesting way to start, start the year from a, from a kind of sports industry deals perspective anyway.
1: Yeah, fascinating from both those perspectives. I think, as you say, it's, you know, it, it is the point of of OTT in some respect that you are super serving one particular audience. Um, and it was a really interesting insight into Discovery's role or what Discovery sees as its role in the media landscape at, at this point. You know, obviously, you have DAZN, who I think we will inevitably get onto, who are, are kind of backed by a lot of, uh, of capital in there going out and buying up rights and trying to become a big global generalist sports OTT network. You have all the regular players, the original, um, the traditional players who are amalgamating and trying to amass as, as much as they can in terms of resources to have the, the kind of technical advantages they need and, and also buy up rights at the kind of scale they need in order to move into this next generation. And then Discovery have decided, okay, we we can find these audiences who are going to commit to a specific thing? Uh, in this case, it's cycling. Earlier, it was golf. TV. There are indications when you look at what's in Eurosport's portfolio, for example. You know, you could go with something like winter sports, like skiing, where you have that kind of crossover between people who watch and people who participate. Um, you have quite affluent audiences. You have you have a very advanced and complicated uh, equipment market and. People are always looking for a little bit of an edge in terms of their own performance. Um, I think it's it's a really fascinating kind of zig when everybody else is zagging almost in in terms of, of where that took everything.
2: I guess it's another sign, you know, you mentioned golf there. Discovery is almost intention to kind of to own a sport to an extent. Um, not necessarily own a sport, but, you know, own own the content coming out of that sport. You know, it gives them... People are going to associate them with with PGA Tour now. They're going to associate them with cycling. Um, it really allows them to kind of to put their identity on that, as, as, you, as you were kind of saying.
1: Yeah, and it's where they can add value as well, I suppose, because you know we've seen well, there's, there's um reports this week of the PGA Tour uh, signing a massive deal in the US, which was the one place where the golf TV deal doesn't carry, um, and they will of course be sub licensing agreement signed and there'll be an attempt for all these rights holders to to distribute as widely as they can but it's why would somebody spend that bit of extra money for a specific service and i think yeah that, that this model is is one way of accomplishing that and there will be other ways and, and i'm sure we'll get onto those
0: i picking up a little bit on what sam said about actually owning a sport um and perhaps being um like i think i think with OTT in particular, you see rights holders discussing how they can how they can go direct to consumer with their content, and maybe it's the maybe again it's kind of the broadcasters here being a step ahead and trying to make sure that they stay relevant by saying Well, I don't think that a rights holder can do what we can do in terms of marketing a product. Like a, a rights holder, can it? can it necessarily add in all of those kind of extra features that this discovery cycling or golf tv has uh, yeah it's mm-hmm. promising where it's like a, you're not going to see um football all of its merits you're not going to see i don't know the world bobsleigh federation start selling you parts to a bobsleigh <laughs> it's just not it's not going to work in the same
1: way um, and you couldn't do it with football either you couldn't do it with you know some sports no. are just too big there are too many principal rights holders involved uh, there are too many disparate kinds of supporter and, and experience and everything else that that, that come through that, um, that you couldn't get enough of a core around an individual platform.
2: Yeah, but I guess that's also the thing, right? These are cycling, golf, it's kind of almost niche sports to an extent, but they've got massive audiences and loads and loads of people who, who participate in them both. So mm. um you know, while it might you might be looking at it and going, okay, it's only golf, it's only cycling, these are both still sports with massive, massive
0: followings.
1: Yeah. Tom, I understand you've got to, you've got to push on now. Um I do.
0: Thank you very much for having me.
1: Yeah, thank you for your time and um Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you too. So Sam, any any deals that you would point to? Yeah,
2: I mean, I guess it's you've already kind of mentioned them already, but it's uh, it's probably impossible to go a, an end of year sports industry rap podcast without mentioning without mentioning design, um, and I guess the deal that it wasn't necessarily a rights deal that um, that stood out for me this year, but it was it was the one that the the wider group did um, did with the sports data specialist stats. So um, obviously offloads their kind of their, their data company, their content company perform. Um, yeah. Not necessarily offload, I mean, they haven't they have abandoned it entirely. They've still they've still retained the minority stake. But you know, they've they obviously announced that merger back in April, um, and I guess it was kind of I saw that as sort of you know a bit of a signal of intent because you know, perform set up initially is as, as that was kind of the original company, and it's kind of they're leaving that behind now and completely prioritizing that streaming side of the business. Um, and I I believe they even said at the time, you know, that um that in doing so uh, they were gonna kind of they were gonna reinvest reinvest that money on on sports rights. And I think we sort of started to started to see that happen towards the end of this year, you know, with the recently announced deal for the Champions League in Germany. Also the fact that they were apparently well rumoured to be in the mix for the same competit rights for the same competition in the UK, which ultimately yeah. obviously ended up back with BT. It was just it was a signal that, you know, that they're tooling up, especially ahead of what's to come in the US with the major league rights contracts coming up for renewal within the next few years. I believe the NHL is the first of those. Obviously going to be followed by the NFL, um, having already picked up a package for MLB cuts in rights last year. So and throughout the year, you know, there's been there's been rumors that they're seeking further investment. So I think that was kind of a deal that stuck with me just because um, just because they're the ones in this OTT space now that we're really seeing make an offensive on those, on those top-tier rights. And especially because, you know, I think I've always kind of looked at DaZone. it's difficult not to look at them alongside 11 Sports, given that they've always been kind of those two new names on the block. And this year in particular, I think it was interesting to see how Zone continued on that upper trajectory trajectory, while we saw Eleven maybe scale back a little bit, especially obviously in the UK, having having that situation with the La Liga rights, where they had to relinquish those at the start of the year. Um, and it kind of just says, it It spoke a little bit to, you know, the, the models that both those companies have adopted, you know, Design have made it clear from the outset that they want the big, the big rights and the big markets, whereas Eleven adopted a slightly different model. So perhaps the fact that one of those is working and one of those isn't says a little bit about both you know, maybe who's got it right, who's maybe got more investment behind them. Um, Whether the the distribution models that 11 has adopted in each market was the right one. Um, So, yeah, I think it was, uh, that was kind of the deal that that stuck with me, mainly because it set off a kind of a chain of events. and a lot of what's to come.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think it's definitely an interesting deal and um, it does two things, as you say. It, it, It doesn't quite decouple D'Zone from Perform, um, yeah. because there are there are legacy elements of, of Perform or what Perform has been able to produce down the years. But I was talking to, to Scott Ferguson on stage at the OTT Summit from DaZone and he said that one of the one of the most valuable legacies for uh for DaZone from the Perform days is something called the Master Fixture List, which is this enormous document or you know, living document of all the sporting events that are going on around the world at any one time. And given that his uh, his work is mostly in programming. You know, that's quite helpful to have something like that available. Yeah, It also creates Stats Perform as a, you know, big AI-led monster of an analytics company. I'm sure that that will go off and and do bewildering things uh, across the sports industry and a whole range of functions. But, yeah, I suppose that the comparison with with 11 is interesting because 11 – has this kind of quite nimble model it, it's kind of quite opportunistic in some respects but certainly very much tailored to each market and the zones ambitions are, are much bigger and broader and i think they see themselves being kind of peerless really in in sports broadcasting they see themselves on as, as trying to emulate what entertainment companies have done in uh, other parts of the media um, netflix being an example of someone you know a, a big global brand that's recognizable everywhere Uh, and associated with kind of premium quality in terms of experience and in terms of content, it's very difficult to do. And I think the difference is that it requires a lot of capital. It requires a kind of relentless forward motion and you never know quite when the payoff is going to come. I was watching something funnily enough on, on the athletic to, to talk about, you know, new sports media startups with, with serious backing, but it was around the Anthony Joshua, Andy Ruiz fights this year. Obviously boxing is, is a big part of the DAZN strategy in the U S. Um, Barry Hearn was talking about the stakes for DAZN. There's a lot of investment. The payoff could be absolutely gargantuan, but you're playing in a, in a different way, certainly from how sport has got used to playing and from how traditional media companies used to operate. Profit might come later, sustainability might come later, rights are expensive, all that stuff is going to be, you know, it could go one of any number of ways, but it's, it's certainly fascinating. They've obviously hired very good people, uh, very high profile people, John Skipper, of course, to kind of head the whole thing up. And, you know, he has a, a fascinating history in terms of the way he's moved from one type of media to another. I think that that breadth of experience will, will stand them in good stead and that kind of creative way of, of thinking about different in- industries, they're certainly able to free themselves from a linear way of thinking when it comes to presentation, but they are ultimately also there in every market. They're going to be a curiosity and they're going to be people who are going to be unconvinced. And
2: Yeah. I mean, it's just, um, it's obviously, it's interesting as well because they're kind of, they're facing, well, maybe not necessarily direct competition, but in the background now you've got Amazon kind of, Slowly infiltrating a little bit more. Um, obviously, that deal with uh, they're the other party involved in that Champions League deal in Germany, mm. sort of WTA in the UK this year. I guess that German market in particular is very interesting now. That kind of feels like uh, don't want to use this term, but I'm going to almost like a tipping point to an extent, mm. that you've now got two, you know, pure OTT players with the rights to the biggest European club competition. In football, um, and yeah, I mean, Amazon—it's kind of of all the names that have been floated about in recent years. Whether it's Facebook, Twitter, Google, Apple—they're the—they're the ones who, you know, they're, they're the ones who look like they're serious yeah. about um, going after some of those big rights. And I think this year again has kind of cemented that they're not necessarily—they're not necessarily making loads and loads of acquisitions, but they're making top-tier acquisitions.
1: Yes, absolutely, and doing it in such a way that. You feel like, you know, you don't want to be dismissive about it, but it feels like a, an R&D play almost. Some of the some of the research they're doing, they're thinking, we're going we're to find out absolutely what we need to know about this audience, about their behavior, about the interactions between their behavior in terms of what they watch and what they might want to buy subsequently or what their other activities might be subsequently, what kind of incentives we can offer them. It's, it's there the feels like there's a lot going on. I mean, the way that they have structured their approach to the Premier League in this country. The execution of that, I think, was was really interesting. They didn't make an enormous splash until it was time to. In August, I don't think anyone was talking about the fact that this was Amazon's first season. Um, they haven't done a hell of a lot of shoulder programming. And when they arrived, you know, obviously you're only hiring people for a couple of weeks, but there is no, there is no face of the channel who... Is distinct from anywhere else it's kind of it's all freelancers and everything and they focused on presenting an experience i guess across whatever range of devices and everything that people might want um they seem to largely avoid catastrophe i know there were some complaints as there inevitably are but but you know mostly it seemed to to go fine on the, on the technical from a technical standpoint and you feel like they're not done you feel like they're, there's yeah. probably a bigger play to follow
3: for sure,
1: for sure. That, that's a company that makes a lot of money
3: <laughs>
1: and has a, a substantial infrastructure. And whether it's the NFL or whether it's uh Premier League here, um, you do feel like in the next couple of cycles, if they were really serious about it, if they thought it could be transformative for what they do as a company, they could go back in and... Do something very, very big, and that could change everything for some rights holders.
2: Indeed.
1: Okay, so we've talked a fair bit about uh, about the broadcast sector, and you know the move into OTT. I wanted to flag up a sponsorship deal and a deal that speaks a fair bit to the way that partnerships are changing. Um, and that's the partnership between uh, Airbnb and the IOC. Airbnb's been. Kind of was kind of involved at the fringes a little bit with Rio twenty sixteen, um, but has now joined the the top sponsorship program uh, for the IOC. Um, it kind of continues a trend in terms of what the IOC's done with that program, with uh, bringing in kind of uh, you know digitally minded partners like um, Alibaba and Intel um, companies who are capable of uh, of, of doing projects at real scale and, and are looking for showcases for those capabilities um, that can have a real transformative effect on, on what the Olympics is about and uh, what the IOC is able to accomplish um, with the Olympics um, and I think it you know it's a deal that on one level makes quite a lot of sense uh, people need accommodation for the Olympic Games and uh, you know it's about the whole Airbnb kind of marketing, Branding philosophy is about discovering new cities and, and all that type of thing. But on the flip side, it's also a deal that has an awful lot of interesting things within it about the relationship between corporate stakeholders and city authorities, the kind of guest that an Olympic Games is in a, in a host city, all of that type of stuff, Sam.
2: Yeah, I think another interesting element was the Olympian experiences, mm. uh, side of it which uh I think it was something like a 28 million dollar IOC and IPC fund for athlete accommodation but I mean you know just that kind of thing allowing giving athletes a way to directly make something off of this um yeah but a long-ranging debate how much Olympians should be earning um I think it's a good step forward that the IOC is kind of starting to address that in the and kind of, you know, the money and the commercial dollars that it is making off of those athletes is kind of incorporating them into those contracts as well in a way.
1: And
2: yeah, an opportunity to make something off of it.
1: Yeah, well obviously Rule 40 has been a pretty hot topic in Olympic circles uh, for, for the past 12 months and more and will continue to be in Tokyo, the IOC kind of delegating the liberalisation of, of those regs to, uh, to to each National Olympic Committee and some going in different directions from others and some offering more rights to athletes in terms of what promotion they can do during the games, the olympian experiences yeah there's this this kind of fund for for accommodation there's also uh the opportunity to do branded stuff around um around a city as part of the kind of airbnb experiences thing, which is like city tours and and that type of stuff slightly lesser known, slightly less kind of intrinsically connected to the airbnb brand I guess but seems to be doing reasonably well for them. Aside from I did see just before we came on something about them having to to take down an event that that promised the 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 Chilean revolutionary experience or something like that. <laughs> not sure. Not sure that was very well judged. Um but I don't know any more details on that. Um yeah, I think that's still, you know, that element of it felt a bit like an acknowledgement that there needed to be something in the deal that that reflected that debate. I don't think it's going to address it. In and of itself, it might be interesting to see whether those kind of things are built into to further sponsorship deals that the IOC does. The big challenge is going to be, you know, the, the next two cities after Tokyo that are hosting the Olympic Games are Paris and Los Angeles, and Airbnb has ongoing legal and public disputes uh, with both of those cities, and I think that that's going to be, uh, I think that's going to be a factor in in how this deal is received and and how the Olympic Games are received in each of those cities. Obviously, obviously some of the ways in which the use of Airbnb is manipulated, some of the knock-on effects it has for the private rental market and for uh, hotel industry and everything else are very much live issues in, in some of the biggest cities in the world. And yeah, the, the way local authorities address that is going to be quite pertinent to to how this partnership evolves.
2: And on a slightly lighter note, it also provided of the better social media moments in the industry of the year Uh, i think it was the financial times that uh basically i think everyone took their 500 million dollar the price tag that they put on the sponsorship deal is it's gospel um but then it was brian chesky who's obviously heading up airbnb who just simply tweeted this was not 500 million dollars which is probably (laughs) i'd probably say his word over the financial times maybe in this situation
1: perhaps perhaps (laughs) um Yeah, whether we ever find out how big the deal actually was, um, it was a big deal in the more colloquial sense. Mm -hmm. Right, I think people have heard enough from the two of us for now, Sam. We will come back in just a few moments and uh, talk about some of the other trends that have affected 2019 and and might kind of permeate into 2020. Um, But after this, we will hear from Lisa Parfit, who's going to be talking about another big year in women's sport.
0: Enjoying this SportsPro Pro podcast? Well, we're also the sports industry leader in print, digital, and events. Head to sportspromedia.com for the latest features, news, and interviews from the business of sport. Help yourself to a subscription to our acclaimed magazine and find out about our unmissable conferences before anyone else. Get inside the industry with Sports Pro. Lisa
1: Parfit, Managing Director of Engine Sport, welcome to the Sports Pro podcast.
3: Thank you very much.
1: Um, Lisa, it's been another, I, I don't really know what expression to use anymore because it's kind of, there've been several of them in, in a row, but another year of, uh, of really substantial progress for women's sport. I mean, just to, to tee us up, first of all, what, what are some of your highlights of 2019 being?
3: Um, do you know what my, my, probably my biggest highlight is the fact that we're having this conversation and you just asked me that question because, um, it's not been, a single moment mm. this year there's not been all the kind of the tipping was that the tipping point we always talk about olympics as the tipping point was that the tipping point and you just have to leave it another three you know two years or four years before the next thing that kind of happened and this year women's sport has been the story it has been a consistent story of the year and i think that honestly looking at the that has been the highlight There's not been a day where there hasn't been new news, there hasn't been another amazing story, there hasn't been another stat about the um, uh, uh, audience uh, increasing, watching the, you know, the variety of sports. So uh, honestly, I think it's uh, almost impossible to pick a single highlight from the year, but I think the highlight is just mm. that. It is the significant progression of women's sport and that this year was the year that it, it really tipped... Into being um, uh, hitting mainstream properly, hitting mainstream and being a raft of positive um, stories yeah. rather than a need to back kind of it up all the time with. But it's great and it's going to progress and it's getting better and it's really growing. We will get sponsors. That conversation has just dramatically changed.
1: Yeah. I mean, do you think? Obviously, we've seen you know some uh, some some great events. We've had the the Women's World Cup, the Netball World Cup in. In this country we've had compelling characters like uh, like Megan rapino um, who have just seized their moment seized the stage um kind of completely unabashedly and and you know all, all the better for it is it is it a question of what what's changed is it more a question of media coverage the commitment that we've seen from um from for example the Telegraph in this country launching a, a complete women 's sports section and the the change in attitude that we've seen from media in terms of covering women's sport and uh, and it being less of a uh, a novelty and and more of kind of just a, a part of the conversation or is it a question of the product having been raised to a level that that people are are ready to engage with it more?
3: Um, well, a few um, about three or four years ago, I would give a speech and I would say it was about a combination. It, you know, it was about all of those things coming together. You know, it was a time when the media coverage wasn't great. There were no sponsors. The performances on the pitch—actually, the performances on the pitch have always been pretty good, consistently good over the last few years. And we've, um, particularly in the UK, I think we've had a uh, a strong leadership in terms of the performance of our national teams. Um, and I always said, you know, it's actually going to be about getting a balance of those things coming together, um, working together for us to have success. And I think that's what's happened. I think you're absolutely right. All of those things that you've identified there, um, you know, mainstream media, I mean, what Anna Kessel and her team at the Telegraph Women's Sport has done is absolutely outstanding. You know, they've really taken a stand and said, um, there is space for this. In fact, you know, there's tons of space for this. We've got so many stories and we're going to take a campaigning edge on this too. Um, You've got major commitment from the broadcasters. You've got incredible performances on the pitch. But I think the thing that's quite important to look at, because... There needs to be something that starts all that off. There needs to be a reason why you suddenly get the sign-off to do a telegraph or you get the sign-off to spend money on rights and make a commitment. And I think the reason for that is because you've got generation equality now. Yeah, You've got a a, a young generation of up-and-coming consumers who are massively fast um, uh, growing consumer base, and they are absolutely um, desperately looking for brands um, and partners and media um, with with purpose absolutely at the heart. And gender equality is a major, major concern to them, alongside, you know, climate change. Um, and and many, many other um, uh, kind of global issues. And I think it's that generation that is kind of demanding this. And so the broadcasters and the media, they're they're all waking up to the fact that actually they need to start offering a different type of media. They need to start um, uh, reporting on the issues that this generation care about, because if they're um, going to future-proof themselves, they need to be making sure that they're generating the right kind of content. Um, And I think that's what women's sport has benefited from hugely which is you've got a generation of people that really care about gender equality yeah and will stand up that's not fair why don't they have the coverage why why aren't they being paid the same um and and i think that that's what's really really driving this and and fair play to those that are responding to it because they will be the successful broadcasters and new papers and content providers in the future
1: yeah what still needs to change
3: Oh, good question. Um, I think that um, a a level of consistency. So I think we've had a year where we've had some really big events. So we had the Women's World Cup. We had the Vitality Netball World Cup. You know, you've got really big moments there. And those are big moments that, you know, the media understand. Broadcasters understand. They've kind of put the full weight behind them. Um, delivered great content. Uh, we're going into a year where there are some 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 more great events. Um, I mean, for example, I mean the Olympics will be huge. It always has been huge for women's sport in particular because of the gender parity that you have. Uh, we've obviously got the men's uh, Euros next year, but I what I think between those events, I think what what will be interesting is to see how um, there is continued support and conversation, perhaps around. Not the glo- the big global events that put our national teams on a on an international platform. You know what happens in tennis, what happens in cricket, um, what happens in some of the less kind of mainstream sports and those less mainstream stories um, for next year. And I think what will need to be changed and what will be really interesting is to see how the continued media coverage um, supports those and and how we continue to generate and build profile for for those women in those um different sports
1: yeah to what extent with um some some of the structural challenges with broadcasting and, and getting uh, media coverage in, in in certainly in kind of traditional linear channels to what extent is it going to be sponsors who are going to have to step up here and uh, and and really deliver a bit more visibility for, for some of those competitions that you're talking about and some of those uh you know get a bit more of a consistent momentum behind these things. I mean, you, you work a lot with brands, quite a lot. There was, you know, quite a a fun campaign that Budweiser did in in the States, which was around the National Women's Soccer League, um, you know, saying the official future Mm. restaurant, the official future, um, you know, vehicle or whatever bits of, uh, it was timepiece and deodorant and some of the other categories that are, are unfilled that you wouldn't, um you wouldn't imagine would be unfilled in a, in a men's league of, of that scale you know is that really where the opportunity is is on, on the sponsorship
3: side yeah I mean I think um again on the sponsorship and the commercial size that's d- developed enormously and what I think has been fascinating this year is starting to see um some of the different types of brands who haven't necessarily ventured into um sports sponsorship before and perhaps wouldn't necessarily have ventured into sponsorship of uh, the men's sports. Um, so, you know, the likes of boots getting involved with the, um, the national sides, uh, national football teams in, in this country, you know, boots is not somebody that you would necessarily have lined up with, with, um, men's football. Um, and I think that's really interesting because I think women's sport, whilst the, the sport and whilst football is, is the same, um, the properties um, and what you're able to do with them and different types of stories and the people that you're targeting is completely different. So, uh, yeah, I think that's, I think that's really interesting. That is what the opportunity is. And, you know, agencies and brands need to not make assumptions about women's sport in the same way that they necessarily would about, um, you know, the men's sports, that that you do the same thing or you're going to get a kind of similar story because, um, you have to treat them very, very differently. Yeah. In terms of broadcast and um, and awareness, I do think um, that brands have got a role to play in that. I think um, the investment that Barclays this year have put into the WSL um, and now the FA player um, investment that both the FA and Barclays are making together to make sure that um, it, whether you can watch it on broadcast or not, but you can watch the WSL games... Um, on an OTT platform mm-hmm. um, is is a really interesting case study because you've got a brand and you've got a rights holder coming together and um, investing in a platform that the fans are asking for. Yeah. Um, you know, women's football fans traditionally lived on social media. There's huge, you know, communities of um, not just actually football fans, but uh, women's sports fans who who have used social media very successfully to kind of connect with each other and to campaign for, um more visibility and support of their various different teams. And I think that's a fascinating example. And I think we probably will start to see more of that, where you see brands coming together with the rights holder to provide those um, those solutions, because ultimately there's going to be payoff for for both of those two parties.
1: Yeah. How does the, I think you alluded to it a little bit there when you talked about um, WSL fans and, and, and women's sport fans having lived primarily on social media and, mm. and, and connected with the sport in that way, how how do you have to encourage brands to think differently when they're, you know, I think in, in sports sponsorship in um, uh, in, in men's sport and in existing women's strong women's sports properties like, um, WTA and so on, you've got, uh, very well established media networks and, and routes to fans and, uh, and, you know, a, a kind of grammar around the whole thing. How do you have to encourage brands to think differently and, in terms of uh, what message they're communicating and how they're doing it um, when they're working with emerging properties?
3: Um, I think that women's sport um, actually requires um, brands and agencies to think much more strategically about the um, communication channels in which they're going to use. I think um, that possibly sometimes it's looked at with... Um, some of the, the men's properties is that you've got a huge platform. We're going to be on TV and we've, we've got the iDents, We've got our LEDs. Um, you know, we've got a great amount of, uh, of, um, of inventory, I would say, uh, to use alongside our brand campaign. And that's going to do an awful lot of the heavy lifting. And we're able to measure that really well. And that's not something that you can necessarily do um, with women's sports. And so you need to think far more strategically about where your campaign is going to live who are the audiences that we're going to try and target Um, and what and um, and how creatively are we going to do that I think you know you mentioned the Budweiser campaign um I think that was a really clever creative campaign um and actually one with a great deal of purpose at the heart of it as well you know who you know we have sponsored the women's team who else is going to join us you know actually traditionally in in uh, sponsorship I think there's been you know there's kind of the exclusivity and I want to make sure I've got my space and I don't want anyone else to be competing with me and actually what I think you'll see it starts to see partners working together in the women's game I think that's quite reflective of women's sport in general actually how much women's sport is helping each other um, you know grow and develop so I think you'll start to see that with with partners as well but I do think women's sport means that you you need to be really really strategic about the channels that you choose and not assume um, that you'll get the reach necessarily and the awareness um, perhaps in the ways that you would do from, from a more developed um, men's um, sport sponsorship program.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And where, where we have seen success in the last year, I mean um, women's football and and, and netball have been two really good examples in the UK. Um, But where we've seen that growth, where we've seen that development of, um of of, uh public profile what's what comes next how do you build on that success in a way that's uh that's substantial and and, and meaningful Uh,
3: it's probably again i think that it's back to the point around um consistency of um profile i think one thing that's quite interesting is There could be a perception, given the number of um, partners, and the FA have been particularly successful in securing a number of partners um, for both um, men and women's team and the Lionesses and the WSL, Um, there there could be an assumption that it's starting to get pretty full um, and that the opportunities aren't there. Um, And that's absolutely, you know, certainly not the case. you know, there is a whole host of incredible um, female athletes. It's a great opportunity to start looking at kind of individual ambassadors. Mm. Um, you know, that Vitality has signed up, you know, Jess Ennis for a long time. They've uh, recently signed up, you know, Tracy Neville coming off the back of the, the Vitality Netball World Cup. You know, there's a whole host. I mean, the Telegraph Women's Sport are doing their 51 Um, top uh, women's sport athletes and coaches. You know, there's a whole host of athletes to start looking at as potential sponsors who are amazing ambassadors and who care very, very deeply about... um, Uh, raising the profile for their various different sports and and, and women's uh, and women's sports so I think that's really interesting I think you know every every week there's kind of new opportunities I mean you start to look at something like the W Series for example which was a huge success um, in Mm. 2019 um, Jamie Chadwick lifting the first W Series trophy um, and really cementing her place in driving history and and now one team as well so you know, there are very, there are a lot of interesting um, opportunities out there. And I think we need to move a little bit beyond football being the only, you know, the only thing there. Because football has, you know, dramatically um, uh, risen, uh, women's football has dramatically risen over the last last few years. And now I think we need to start looking beyond that. Fascinating next summer, you've got the launching. Um, and, uh, you know, how often do you have a new... Competition launch, uh, men and women's teams, um, you know, equality absolutely baked in, you know, from the beginning. I think that's going to be an absolutely fascin- fascinating, fascinating um, place for cricket and for women's cricket in particular um, to be alongside world class coaches, uh, being in a professional setup from 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 day one. And I know the players are really excited about that. Again, huge opportunity for partners there. So I think it is about looking beyond. Perhaps the obvious, or perhaps the kind of headlines, yeah. um, uh, and, and started to carve out um, uh, space within 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 new sports um, because the stories are so um, varied um, across the sports and with the different athletes. Because you know they've each had their different challenges. They've all been non-professional athletes starting to move into mainstream media. So the, the opportunity to be creative and the opportunity to um talk to new audiences is, is is huge.
1: Yeah. What about sport as an industry? I mean it's a uh, um historically and continues to be really if we if we're being brutally honest about it. Um sport tends to be quite a male-dominated business in terms of representation of, yep. of people in in positions of power, in positions of uh accountability and and those people holding um, the powerful two account. I mean, you know, we've talked about the Telegraph and the work that that's being done there with Anna Kessel, but you know, women are still underrepresented in sports media. You know, I can speak from personal experience that they're they're even worse, you know, even more poorly represented in in trade media. Um, what yeah. what steps does the industry need to take to to improve that and to you know is it a question of creating networks between people is it is there going to be an inevitable knock-on effect of having visibility for women's sport having more young women who then come into the industry uh in in a few years time what's what's your perspective on
3: that yeah i think i think i probably you probably know that this particular topic is very close to my heart i think that sports industry continues to need to take a very very hard look at itself um particularly as uh, an inclusive um industry um that is opening itself up to all kinds of different people um uh, working in it supporting it um i think that it is still uh, i think it's still too white i think there's too, still too much domination as you said there's a lot of men it's very male dominated Um, and that, and that doesn't help our inclusivity credentials. That doesn't help us attract new talent to, um, to agencies, to sports, um, to the media. Um, And I think it's something that we have to take really, really seriously. Um, and I think that everybody needs to reflect on themselves, men or women, whoever you are to make sure that we are really challenging ourselves to look for new and different people. It's a very easy thing to kind of hire in the people that look like you, that sound like you, that think, you know, going to do the job that you think that they, you know, that you would want to be doing. And, you know, that's not the way in which we, we change the landscape of sport. Um, there's a couple of really interesting um, communities that I think you'll start to see popping up and uh, really taking this um conversation forward. I mean, firstly, I'm a board member um, of Women in Football. Um, You know, our um, ambition is really simple, is to increase the number of women who are um, uh, working within the beautiful game um, in, in any particular role. Um, And we spend an awful lot of time and investment and Barclays this year um, have reinvested into the organization to make sure that we're providing um, learning and development and support uh, to women who are in the industry for them to develop and grow and be in more senior positions um, and leadership positions or or women who want to join our industry uh, and bring with them an amazing um, background and experience and talent. Um, Another community that um, a a friend and colleague of mine, Claire Parnell, set up is Mums in Sport. And again, um, you know, it's a a community of women who are mothers in sport who do have a a unique set of of challenges. But ultimately, we just want to give more women who are working in the industry, who are mothers, more of a voice so that more people can understand some of those unique challenges. And and, and that women feel that they're supported, that they can continue to grow and develop and get into more senior positions. Yeah. Uh, And that there are mothers out in the sports industry who see it as an inclusive place to work and that they feel that those two things are compatible. Because at the moment, you know, there's many women who look at the sport and think that's just not a compatible thing. That's just not, that is not the right thing for me to do. So we're missing out on a a huge wealth of talent. So I think it's organisations like those and communities like those who... In the, in the coming few years we will we'll have more of a significant voice and I think you'll start to see actually more brands and more media who start to support those organisations um, because as I said, back to what I said earlier on in terms of what this change is being driven by is you have a young workforce um, who expect equality um, and, and won't go and work in different places if, if that's not there. So ultimately, you know, sport is going to miss out um, if we don't start to um make a change now,
1: yeah, I mean do you feel like it's an industry that is you know if if you were putting yourself in putting yourself in the shoes of someone in their twenties early twenties coming into the industry or someone coming across from another industry, is it one at the moment that's attractive even beyond the level of representation that already exists, or are there structural things that that need to change that need you know um in order for it to be a a, a better place for, for women to work in.
3: I think it I think what to me, I think actually it, it is a very attractive industry. I think you get um, you know, young people who are starting out in their careers, who have an absolute passion for sport. Um, I was that very person who had a passion for sport, who wanted to work in sport, would do anything, you know, and um it's a it's really competitive industry to get in, because, you know, Ten or twenty people lined up behind you who 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 want to take that role whenever it might be, I think it then becomes more challenging when you actually get into the industry and I think that's when you, you can start to see some of the inequalities um, appear and um, and so I think actually our challenge is probably not to attract people to the industry. I think it's about um maintaining the talent in our industry. What's really fascinating is um you know what is happening with the diversification of um channels and platforms in sport is you've got some um really entrepreneurial young people who are starting their own businesses they're becoming influencers amazing uh, woman Ro Jackson who recently launched slow which is a women's sport um uh magazine it's a really incredible creative magazine and platform for women's sport so I think the opportunities are there and the young talent coming in are absolutely snapping them up and we just need to make sure um, that we learn from them and we um, create an industry that's uh, right for them in the future.
1: Uh, now, Lisa, I know your, your Christmas break is almost, uh, almost about to start, um, but before you go, what are some of the things, uh, you know, you've alluded to a couple of them already, but what are some of the things you're most looking forward to in 2020?
3: Um, uh, I'm really looking forward to um, the Olympics next summer. Um, I'm looking forward in particular because... Um, the Olympics has always been a, a moment for women's sport because the parity um, that you have between men and women competing together in the same team. What I'm really excited about this time round is I think um, I think both men and women are, are they're going to see incredible performances. I am so excited to see a Team GB football team who have um, a really massive opportunity um, to take home a gold medal I'm looking forward to seeing all of the new and up-and-coming and and athletes that we perhaps wouldn't necessarily see uh, in between the Olympic cycle, performing in a whole host of different sports that, again, you you wouldn't necessarily see. And I hope that um, we've got some new young superstars that are going to be born next summer. And then, honestly, I'm I'm really looking forward to the Euros. I'm looking forward to the men's Euros. I think, um, you know, it's going to... I hope it's going to feel like a home Euros, um, and with that with the final being hosted at Wembley, you know, I think everyone has their fingers crossed that we've got someone represented there. And also that that's going to be a platform um to start developing into 2021 when we will be hosting the full women's Euros here in in the UK. And actually the last thing that I'm really looking forward to, and I alluded to in one way other other questions next year, is um Engine Sports working with the ECB and the marketing campaign for the hundred. Um and I think that's going to be uh, a massive moment for the sport next summer um, and I'm really excited to see how um, the new and exciting um, format rolls out um, and see how we are attracting new audiences to cricket because I feel passionate so cricket is a sport that I grew up with as a child um, sitting on the side of village cricket greens and I'm really excited about being able to take my two young girls along to a game of cricket for a couple of hours in a summer evening um, and for them to fall in love with again.
1: Fantastic thanks very much Lisa uh, and have a great Christmas and New Year.
3: Thank you Happy New Year.
1: Welcome back to the Sports Pro Podcast. podcast thank you to Lisa Parfitt of Engine Sport Sam, we're gonna we're gonna wrap up for the year. We'll just uh, look at a couple of other trends that have been influential in 2019 and might continue to be uh, into the next decade. Um, we talked, or Tom brought up, you know, the creep of events into Saudi Arabia, creep becoming a bit of a gallop, really, in in the last few months, um, as some of 2018's controversies around the Saudi regime have well the controversy hasn't dissipated, but the, the coverage perhaps of those controversies has dissipated a bit. Um, I mean, that was something that, that you were keen to talk about as well coming into coming into the
2: podcast. Yeah, I mean, as you as you said there, it's, it's far from a creep now. It's kind of they've related some of the events down here that have sort of either happened or been confirmed in the past three months. You know, you've got... As Tom mentioned earlier, Joshua versus Ruiz, uh, ASO has plans to launch a new cycling tour. Uh, Daniel Medvedev and Stan Wawrinka were competing in a tennis tournament there recently. The Ladies European Tour, joining the Men's European Tour with an event there next year. The Italian and Spanish Super Cups will be happening there within the next month. The Dakar rally is moving there. Formula E staged its season opener in Riyadh. And Formula One apparently also kind of contemplating Saudi Arabia as a host for a Grand Prix in the future and kind of in the background of all that you've got reports of a £400 billion neon project almost kind of, you know, creating this Mm. sports hosting bubble. The stuff we're talking about here is kind of, you know, maybe one-off almost exhibition events in a way. Um, But when's it going to get to the stage where we're starting to see you know, one week, two week, three week long major events heading out there when a rights holders like FIFA or who obviously haven't been showing in the past of accepting as money to take their flagship event somewhere um, going to start paying attention as well um, the way it's going at the moment you'd be tempted to say it won't be very long before that happens and so yeah it's a trend that is just starting to show the you know people say politics and sports can't mix um, that's <laughs> Saudi Arabia is showing increasingly that's not true um, as long as the money is there um, yeah Sports and politics are going to be happily intertwined. But I guess in, uh, in taking all these events, you've got all these reasons why they shouldn't be going there the human rights records, having spoken to a number of people at BN Sports this year, you know, it's kind of a lot of these rights holders are accepting money from a country that has been, you know, essentially stealing the content that they sell um, mm. <laughs> to, to, you know, uh, which backs, them, which props them up a lot of the time. So, yeah, it's it's going to be a test over the next year, the next five years, maybe even the next 10 years. It's going to be a test of their morality and, you know, at which point they kind of say, hold on a minute, maybe we won't go there, we'll go somewhere else instead.
1: Yeah, well, it doesn't feel in a lot of rights holders cases as though that is going to happen. Um, yeah. I think it's, you know, we, we, whatever way you feel about it, Saudi Arabia as a major host of sporting events is uh, is going to be a factor for for some time to come. The neon project um, is an interesting one. I, I think I made a note of this in my column the other week. It's like a, an attempt to kind of, as you say, create a, a sports hosting bubble, but you know, somewhere where the everything else of Saudi Arabia is kind of excluded, and yeah. you know, Saudi money is used to uh, to create this this city where it's like a you know, kind of a, a, a West Berlin. For for sport or an entertainment, the part of the Saudi project that's interesting is that they are still, you know, obviously there's money involved. Uh, Eddie Hearn, I think, was was quite transparent about the fact yeah. that that was a that was the motivating factor for taking um, the the Ruiz Joshua rematch. There, um, I'm sure some you will find some other rights holders who'll be frank as well. Um, but you still hear a lot of talk about the vision. And you will still hear talk about reform, and that being, you know, that coming hand in hand with um, with the sport that's going on there. I, my concern is that that feels now like quite an outdated argument, quite an outdated conversation. That you know, the fact that you shine a light on on a region or on a, a nation and its activities, the fact that you get some kind of quite media friendly, uh, you know, progress into the bargain. That's quite incremental. I don't know. It doesn't. It, it doesn't wipe the rest of it away, basically. And I think that you know, rights holders have to go into this thing with their eyes open. If if they're, they're happy to do it, they're happy to do it, and uh, you know, that's that's their prerogative. But I think the idea that sport is going to save the world and and turn things around for for places is uh, is probably one that we're going to have to start to let go of um, at least on that kind of scale. I think you know, activities of governments. Within sport has, has been another theme of 2019, and, and their relationships with uh, with rights holders in particular. China is somewhere that has been increasingly difficult for for most uh, companies to avoid. Never mind, you know, uh, never mind sports bodies. But again, the realities of doing business there have become more and more apparent. I think in in the last few months. Yeah, um,
2: yeah, I think you're right. Obviously, we saw it first with um the nba uh the houston rockets general manager uh and his uh his tweet in support of uh the hong kong protests um and yeah i mean i guess i guess it just kind of shows the the power that these governments exude over some some of the biggest sports leagues in the world um the fact mm-hmm. that china's state tv pulled its broadcasts and you know was almost Almost had the nBA on the end of a puppet string to an extent um, it had one of the most powerful leagues in the world scrambling to kind of save what is probably its well, what is i think' its, its biggest market outside of outside of north america um, yeah and then obviously, more recently we've seen it the same, the same thing a similar thing happen with uh Ar the field and Meza off after his after he posted some some comments on social media um they obviously pulled a broadcast of Arsenal's game against Manchester Manchester City at the weekend and yeah so it, it's it just goes to show that um as you're saying it's not necessarily anything new but governments do have a significant hold over sport and I think it's it was always something coming out of sports called last week that I was at in in Miami it's down to other governments to sort of respond to these now, yeah. so you know, we talk about China, we talk about Russia a lot of the time, um, we're talking about Saudi Arabia, it shouldn't necessarily, as you were saying, we need to let go of this idea that sports may be going to sports, that sports the one that has to solve those problems, we need, you know, you need the US government to stand up against, against China in that situation, maybe you need the UK government to say something, you need um, whoever it is, you need these governments where these sports are residing, to also, you know, stand up either in support, or whatever else those
1: of those leaders are yeah. fighting that battle. Yeah. Well, Mike Mike Pompeo coming out in support of Meza Ozil this week, the the uh, the US uh, Secretary of State. Um, don't know if he ever came out in support of him during the the, the long and uh, tedious debates about his place in the Arsenal first <laughs> eleven. Um, the, the, I mean, the two dynamics that are interesting. I mean, from the perspective of international organisations and their relationship with china i think one thing that it's exposed is that they need to really have a firmer grasp on what they what they really think about these issues and i think in both cases there was an attempt to create as much distance as quickly as possible from what were in terms of mainstream discourse in each of those countries quite reasonable perspectives on on the issues on hong kong uh, in in the mba's case and on the uh, uh, the plight of the the Uyghur Muslims in uh, in China, in Meza Erzul case, and you know these are in both cases organizations where they've tolerated a degree of uh, freedom of expression in other areas, and it looks bad uh, to the people in your own country if you're if you're showing any kind of double standards in that way. But you know that's that's going to be a huge huge challenge because China is the world's second biggest. Economy. It's the world's most populous country. It's going to become a bigger and bigger influence. I do wonder the extent to which I know that there have been uh, corporate wranglings um, with free speech and, and and what is appropriate and is or what is deemed and is not deemed to be appropriate when you're talking about China in the past. Um, but I do wonder if in this case there's a degree of of pushback. There's a degree of you know Chinese organisations or at a very high level China going from being a cultural importer to a cultural exporter in the next couple of decades, and them saying, look, we don't need the NBA in 20 years because you're going to be watching our league. That could well be a little bit of what's uh, what's informing this at a much, a much deeper level. But anyway, that's something that we'll see um, a lot more about in 2020. Um, China also hosting the Club World Cup, uh, the massively expanded Club World Cup, in 2021, and I feel like that's gonna that's another trend that's really um, that's really gonna be further reaching from 2020. Sorry, from 2019 uh, going into 2020. Sam, the the kind of big thinking around formats in terms of competitions, in terms of individual sports and uh, playing regulations, and all that type of stuff. I and mean, when we touched on it a little bit with Elliot and the fact that um, you can create events now uh, much more easily that, that achieve scale. Um, of interest and, uh, and of importance. And, you know, we're going to see more discussions about club football and, and uh, the, the potential of breakaways. We're going to see venture capital in, in rugby. We've got the 100 coming in cricket, which is a slightly different thing in that it's, again, it's, it's talking about playing rules and, uh, and media-friendly formats. But, again, it's thinking how is sport going to change in a much bigger way?
2: Yeah, I agree. I mean, um, obviously, we've seen this year the uh, the ISL and swimming has um, has been ushered in. As you mentioned there, obviously with UEFA um, and all those plans to revamp the Ch- the Champions League, they're not going to go away. Even more recently, you've had Real Madrid getting in. Real Madrid trying to upend the the Club World Cup to an extent. I think there was a report a couple of weeks ago, or at least compete with it um, with a new competition. So. Yeah, absolutely. I agree that I guess in the next twelve months, the next couple of years, couple of uh, the next few years, that we're certainly going to see more formats roll out. And I think it's kind of I think maybe something that the hundred has taught us over the, uh, in this country anyway is that rights holders they're not particularly worried about upsetting um, they're not worried about upsetting a core cool fan base anymore. You know, they're not worried about taking sport out. Uh, taking their sport outside of its comfort zone and introducing something that is, you know, as you say, going to be more media-friendly more media it's going to rope in those audiences that it might not necessarily have appealed to in the past. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see, yeah, you know, rights holders becoming more daring um, in some of the formats that they're rolling out.
1: Well, whether whether they're whether they're happy to do it or not, I mean, that's a, that's another question. But they're willing to do it, and they're they're willing to absorb and uh, they're willing to live through the pain of it I think and it, and it's media friendly in a way that is possibly different from what we've seen in the last 20-25 years it's media friendly it's, it's reacting to quite drastic changes in 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 viewer behavior and in consumer behavior so I think there's going to be some pretty big pretty serious turbulence on the horizon and it will be very interesting to see how everybody responds to it Right, let's look ahead very briefly, Sam, uh, to 2020. What is something that you would suggest the industry should be looking out for uh, or what's something that you're looking out for uh, next year?
2: Uh, I was going to say a couple of things, actually. Um, The first of those is, I mean, it's something that started to creep in this year. I've written about it a couple of times, but... um, I think we're going to see it continue is kind of, you know, the, the the different approach to sports marketing in the way that, in the way that brands are now not afraid to put their name to a kind of, whether it's a political stance, a social cause. Um, obviously, we've seen it with the likes of Raheem Sterling, Megan Rapinoe, um, Tyson Fury even this year with his, um, some of the stuff he said about mental health. Um It'll be interesting to see how that evolves over the next year. Um, I think some of the campaigns over the past 12 months have been, as I say, I keep using this word, but quite daring. And it'll be interesting to see if that trend continues in 2020. Um, another one that I'm quite I'm going to be looking out for anyway is kind of, you know, the, I know you wrote extensively about it, but kind of the gamification of of content i think this year we've, we've spoken about obviously amazon and zone but i think twitch as well um a lot of rights holders have started experimenting with them they've started experimenting with more social viewing experiences um i think it's something that's gradually creeping into sports broadcasting and possibly over the next year could become not not obviously not a a core part of it but i think we'll start to see a lot more of it
1: yeah um, something I'd look out for, Sam, I mean, obviously the, the Tokyo Olympics will be the biggest event of, of next year, but perhaps the most influential Euro 2020 being played across, uh, is it 12 cities now? You know, how how that works logistically, how that works in terms of the fan experience and the sponsor experience and, and all the rest of it could have uh, significant consequences for how events are organised Um, And I think bigger picture, and this is probably over the course of the decade, sport is going to have to start thinking about what its impact is environmentally um, and whether the things that it does are sustainable, whether that's from purely kind of environmental, climactic point of view, whether it could be more eco-friendly, and also from an economic point of view, whether it's sensible to have the kind of investment that we've seen in the last 15 years or so in infrastructure in the way that we've seen it or whether it needs to happen in a different way and whether sharing around some of these bigger these kind of mega events is is one way of doing that we'll we'll see all kinds of solutions I think to to those problems being offered in the next few years and it'll be you know it'll be quite telling to see which ones of those are adopted right I think uh, I think we've I think we've done it I think we've done enough uh, for 2019 and for the 2010s, Sam. Yeah, 2019
2: done. 2019
1: done. <laughs> just, a, just a few notes before uh, before we sign off. Uh, please, if you are enjoying the Sportsbro Podcast, do be sure to subscribe, uh, to like and share our content on social media. Uh, and you can also make us a nice Christmas gift of a positive review um, if you've got one. Uh, remember as well that you can get in touch with us at podcast at sportspromedia.com. Um, If there's anything that you want to talk about, if there's any feedback you want to give us, any topics that you'd like to hear a bit more about uh, over the course of the next year. Thanks again to Tom Bassam and to Lisa Parfit for their contributions earlier. Thanks to you, Sam Carr, for your own.
2: Thank you, Owen Connolly. Merry Christmas and a happy new year.
1: Uh, Thanks as well to all of our guests uh, in 2019. Uh, And most importantly, thanks to all of you for listening We'll be back in 2020. We've got so much to look forward to across print, digital, events, and indeed podcasts. Until then, have a wonderful Christmas, New Year, whatever it is that you might be celebrating. Have a very happy holiday period. Uh, We'll speak to you again very soon. Bye-bye for now.